Welcome to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is a community helping New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. For more information, go to goodshepherdnewyork.com. May you be filled with curiosity, grace, and peace as we listen and learn together through this sacred text. Good morning, church. My name is David Gunger. I'm one of the pastors here at Good Shepherd. We want to welcome you here this morning. Our gospel text is from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. The gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. During Rowan Williams' visit to General Seminary in 2019, he told the story of Russian Orthodox theologian Lasky speaking of the God of light and dark. And in this parable, God creates creature or man in the light. Creature cannot stand to be in the light, so God creates darkness so that man can retreat to the dark. Then God moves towards the darkness. This is the theme of the incarnation, light moving towards the dark. These are present throughout all of the stories of creation. This theme of God somehow hiding in the dark moved me very deeply, that when I try to run from God and try to hide from God, that is the place that God always finds us, in the dark. In this season of Advent, we celebrate the God who meets us in the dark. This week, this week in our teaching text, we had this line, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, this is the theme, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of husband's will, but born of God. See, throughout scripture, we have this link to children of God being peacemakers. As Jesus said it in Matthew 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they will be called children of God. There was a monk from St. Gaul, his name was Notker, and he wrote this beautiful poem, Lo, under the gentle vine, O Christ, the whole church plays in peace. This Sunday is Peace Sunday. We celebrate peace together. Rowan Williams said, a good theology is a theology oriented towards healing human wounds. Somehow our healing is always connected. When we open up ourselves to God's love, grace somehow meets us. And it's in this unexpected place that we find healing. Now, peacemaking on a meta level can seem very daunting. Our world feels so dangerous and unpredictable. What can we do? Can we even do anything as individuals? You think about our world right now, there's endless war. There's toxic polarization, a changing environment, racial divisions, extreme economic inequality. These problems feel so beyond us. But what if, what if we already had all the tools that we need within us, around us, and between us to heal our world? Now, as a church at Good Shepherd, we don't pretend to have any of the specific answers. Instead, what I wanted to invite us into this morning is I wanted to invite an expert to share about some peacemaking tools, tools that can help us together, all of us, reimagine and rebuild our world. This morning, we're calling these tools the principles and practices of peacemaking. These principles and practices are derived from years embedded on the front lines of some of the world's most pressing problems. They draw wisdom from the world's great faith and ethical traditions, and they are backed by social science and neuroscience. This morning, we have the privilege, privilege of having one of our own parishioners who did not want to be introduced as a preacher, but he is a master practitioner of peace. His name is Greg Khalil. Greg is the co-founder of the Telos Group and also is the founding member and the chair of the board for an organization called Narrative Four, which is a global nonprofit that cultivates empathetic leadership through story exchange. He is also an adjunct professor at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, and he's the graduate of the University of California, Los Angeles, and Yale Law School. This morning, Greg is going to give us some tools and some very practical ways in which we can engage our families during this holiday season and engage our workplace and our neighbors and perhaps even our enemies. Please welcome Greg Khalil. Peacemaking, what is it? Is it pie in the sky, kumbaya, hakuna matata? Can't we all just get along? Or is peacemaking high-level diplomacy and politics practiced almost exclusively by the elite? Is it some of these things or something entirely different? At Telos, with great care, we've arrived at the following definition. Peacemaking is collaboration across lines of difference for the common good. As humans, we must collaborate for food, shelter, our survival. Our individual weakness is actually our greatest collective strength. As Mother Teresa put it, we belong to each other. 
But peacemaking isn't just any collaboration. We can and do collaborate, of course, for destructive ends. Peacemaking, instead, is collaboration with purpose, collaboration for the common good. Peacemaking explicitly embraces a story larger than our story alone, even when we can't yet see it. Peacemaking presumes that we cannot fairly deny our neighbor what we would deem necessary for ourselves. And so peacemakers intentionally work across lines of difference, helping to illuminate and co-create a larger, more inclusive story through the roll-up-your-sleeves dirty work of maximizing human agency, dignity, and freedom. I first began seriously engaging these questions in the so-called Holy Land, Israel-Palestine. I was born and raised in California, but my father comes from just outside Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. As a young American lawyer, I felt compelled to move to Palestine, where much of my family still lives, in very different circumstances, and to advise Palestinian leaders on peace negotiations with Israel. When I arrived, I only saw peacemaking as an often lofty, elite endeavor. It was law, rough-and-tumble politics, and high-level diplomacy. But there, I realized a couple important points. First, what was happening outside the negotiations room was often much more important than what was actually happening in it. Some of us may have seen negotiations as this exalted craft that could write new chapters of human history. But the fact is and was that the best crafted positions simply could not compete with highly mobilized groups and raw power that wanted a very different result. That was true on the ground in Israel-Palestine. It's also true here and on so many other stuck issues around the world. I remember one day specifically in Jerusalem. I had a meeting at a unique place, the American colony. It's a, former's posh, it's a former Pasha's palace converted into a five-star hotel. I'd walked into the fabled storm courtyard and saw tables full of various groups of diplomats, well-known politicians, and civil society leaders, all having seemingly really important meetings. I glanced over at a table of journalists. They were drinking beer. One was having a bacon sandwich. Just then, the call to prayer sounded from the mosque next door. There's nothing inherently wrong with this picture, except the American Colony Hotel is in the middle of a predominantly religious Muslim-Palestinian neighborhood of East Jerusalem. A few hundred feet away lies one of Jerusalem's largest and most influential observant Orthodox Jewish communities, Meishirim. Few people around us ate pork. Many didn't drink alcohol. So as the call to prayer sounded, I saw this seemingly unremarkable scene with new eyes. Then the negotiator class rarely agreed on little, but we did seem to settle on one fundamental truth. Leave religion out. Don't complicate an already complicated mess any further. Yet the majority of Israelis and Palestinians view their world through the prism of their faith. Leaving religion out meant leaving them out. Almost all of the people all around us, the very people we were supposedly representing. 
True peace only ever succeeds when it's rooted in actual community and relationship. We were right to use the powerful tools of diplomacy to, write, to try and write a better reality for Palestinians and Israelis. The massive machinery that drives multinational conflict cannot ultimately shift any other way. But we were also wrong. Wrong to sustain a primarily elite process largely divorced from the realities, hopes, and worldviews of the vast majority of Palestinians and Israelis. That disconnect may have faded the peace process to failure. You see, real peacemaking is rooted in community, in the specific and individual beliefs and cultures and practices of the people involved. For it to take root, it must permeate every segment of society. Historic agreements can and do help usher in new eras, but only when accompanied by the roll-up-your-sleeves coordinated work at every society and level of society and culture over generations. Second, I went and seen peacemaking as something primarily academic and strategic. Quickly, I began meeting the most extraordinary people, not fabled intellectuals, but people from often humble circumstances living out their values despite great personal cost. Human rights defenders, teachers, artists, stay-at-home parents caught in impossible situations, visionary and relentless entrepreneurs. People like Bassam Aramin and Rami Al-Hanan, a Palestinian father and an Israeli father, both had their young daughters separately killed. Ten-year-old Abir by an Israeli soldier outside her school just after she bought a candy bracelet. Thirteen-year-old Smadar by Palestinian suicide bombers in a Jerusalem market listening to music with her also deceased friends. Bassam and Rami took these incomprehensible, irredeemable tragedies and said the story cannot end here. As part of a group of hundreds of bereaved Israeli and Palestinian families called the Parent Circle, they share their stories together over and over with a simple message, not another drop of blood in our girls' names. They're challenging their own communities to see and confront an unjust reality, one in which one group of people controls another, that they ultimately blame for stealing not just their girls, but the lives and livelihoods of so many thousands of others. And they're demonstrating that a different, nonviolent way of, of resistance is possible. No, it can't erase the horrors they and their families know, but, that, but it can take them and all of us together to a better place. Meeting Bassam and Rami and hundreds of extraordinary people like them, I began to see that peacemaking wasn't just academic, but it's a holistic practice. Bassam and Rami could not have arrived at this extraordinary place together, facing such steep resistance, even within their own communities and families, without going on a deeply personal, transformative journey. This is the case for all true peacemakers throughout history, to a person. Peacemaking not, need not be steeped in unfathomable tragedy, and in fact, as we'll see, adopting these principles and practices is often freeing and joyous. But for peacemaking to take root, we must embrace an uncertain journey, a journey that forces us to question all we think we know. For Rami and Bassam and so many others, Israelis and Palestinians, this actually means putting their reputations, their lives and livelihoods on the line. 
peacemaking is ultimately grounded in their very bodies. But for us, it means that our work stretches from the personal to the interpersonal and ultimately to the international. And it means that all of us, no matter our position or title, has an essential role to play. But this begs the question, how? How do we as individuals embark in this journey? How do we collaborate across lines of difference for the common good? The Principles and Practices of Peacemaking is a short document, like a constitution or creed for peacemakers. There are six principles and six practices. The six principles articulate a foundation of values. The six practices equip us to apply those values. I'm going to run through a few principles and a few practices, things you can start thinking about and applying today. Please don't feel overwhelmed. These take consistent practice, like learning anything, to cook or a new sport. They'll never be perfected. The good news, however, is that there are literally thousands of examples of people from all walks of life all around the world, embodying these practices every day. If you look, there are probably many extraordinary peacemakers within your own community. And now there's a growing movement of small groups of people all around the country and now the world studying and applying, working to apply these principles and practices to some of the greatest issues of our day. The three principles I want to highlight are growth, justice, and relationship. First, growth. Change is always possible. At first, this might feel really obvious, but our current reality can seem as if it's cast in stone, that the way things are is the way that they will always be. But this is an illusion. If there is one constant in human history, it's this change. That's the only thing we can take to the bank. We and our world are constantly evolving for better and for worse. And because we're all co-creators of this reality, we all have impact, whether we like it or not, positive and negative. So it's never actually been a question of whether we change the world, you and me. We all do. But how? For good or for bad? Peacemaking begins by embracing this reality of constant change. Peacemakers choose to always believe in and work towards growth. This way of being and be believing is the very embodiment of hope, especially in these dark times. After all, hope isn't a noun. It's not an emotion or an outlook like optimism. Hope is a verb. In the words of our friend from Bethlehem, Mitri Rahib, hope is what you do. Second, justice. Peace and justice are intertwined. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, true peace is not the absence of tension, it is the presence of justice. Think about that. Peace is not absence, it's presence. Working for peace without justice is unserious, empty, and dangerous. That's kumbaya, hakuna matata. Can't we all just get along, peacemaking? But working for justice without concern for healing and reconciliation can degenerate into violence and revenge. This is when justice often becomes just us. Peacemaking isn't about replacing one just, unjust reality with another or turning the powerless into the powerful and vice versa. 
Peacemaking instead is about transforming unjust systems so that they ultimately work for all of us. Third, relationship. Authentic relationship across lines of difference fuel transformation. Right relationship is at the core of peacemaking. Intentionally cultivating relationships across lines of difference provides space for individual transformation, nurtures empathy and humility, and it emphasizes the humanity of those different from us. Diverse relationships actually ground our ideologies, our theologies, our politics in the humanity and lived experience of others. They open the possibility for individual, communal, societal, and systemic change. While this is a principle, this is actually something you can begin to practice today. I'm not suggesting that you run out and get a token friend who's different from you. Yes, absolutely, you can, maybe should, prioritize deepening and forming relationships with those around you who are different. But you can start smaller, reading, watching, and engaging perspectives championed by those who think and live differently from you. Not to debate, but to understand. We hear a lot today about the many ills of social media, and there are many. Yet social media can also be a tool to get us out of our geographic and worldview bubbles. If you're on it, try building an intentionally diverse group of friends and organizations that you follow. This serves as a nice transition to the three practices that I'd like to highlight. Listen to understand, hold competing truths in tension, and center the leadership of the marginalized. First, listen to understand before being understood. This practice is essential and deceptively simple. If we all mastered, I if we all mastered this, I really, really believe this, so much of what ails the world would be healed. Because before we can hope to heal the world, we must first learn to see it and ourselves as it actually is, as we are. In fact, this is a basic principle of di diplomacy called realpolitik. The theologian Paul Tillich puts this into much broader perspective. He says, Love's first act is to listen. Think about that. Think about those times you've actually been heard. Not necessarily that someone agrees with you, but they hear you. So listening to understand before being understood, without agenda, without that urgent reflex to judge or reply, on an interpersonal level, and even at the exalted level of diplomacy, is key. It can transform a moment. It can help us see different uncharted paths. It opens hearts and strategic poss possibility. After all, we must meet each other and ourselves first where we actually are. But love's first act may be to listen. That's not the only act. That's just the very beginning. Second, hold competing truths in tension. Our brains are actually wired to make decisions, to sort, black or white, this or that. Yet peacemaking works towards mutual flourishing, a world in which we can all thrive, black and white, this and that, not either or, but a world of both and. So peacemaking necessarily embraces difference. It recognizes that my story is not the only story. Engaging the truths and experiences of others, even when they do not reconcile with our own, doesn't undermine our legitimacy. Instead, it opens the possibility for a better future for all. And Niels Bohr said this more elegantly, quote, the opposite of a fact is a falsehood. 
but the opposite of, opposite of one profound truth may very well be another profound truth. We all come from families and communities and ethnicities and countries. We have stories. These stories are true. We can't be expected to abandon all of our truth as part of the process of making peace. And we cannot reasonably expect anyone else to do that either. Third, center the leadership of the marginalized. This is perhaps one of the most difficult practices to grasp and live out, but this one is critical. And it's also life-giving for all involved. Centering the leadership of the marginalized begins with recognizing that each of us is an expert in our own reality. I know my circumstance better than any outsider, and so do you. Sometimes in peacemaking, we'll hear people speak of, quote, giving voice to the voiceless. Yet, there's no such thing as the voiceless. There are voices we consistently silence, marginalize, and ignore. Centering their leadership and allowing them to speak their truth says that their lives and their experiences matter too. You see, being near or proximate to those most vulnerable and listening to community-based leaders are two essential foundations of this, of effective ethical movements. Those closest to problem often hold the most significant insight. Similarly, those who pay the greatest price of unjust systems often develop unique perspectives on how to transform those systems. We can honor their resilience and expertise by amplifying platforms for their voices and by following their leadership, not imposing our own. Still, it doesn't mean that we abdicate our own responsibility and unique ability to lead within our own communities, institutions, and also among our peers. Centering the leadership of the marginalized recognizes that peacemaking isn't about us. It's not about my ego. We're not here to be saviors or heroes. Instead, in word and in deed, we're here to help participate in the transformation and restoration of our world from one in which some of us enjoy freedom to dignity and security to a world in which all of us can flourish. As you dive more deeply into peacemaking, you might get some pushback. Believe me, I do. People may tell you that you're naive. Roni Kedar is an Israeli woman who lives less than a kilometer away from Gaza. Thousands of makeshift rockets from Gaza have rained down on her agricultural community. One killed her daughter's best friend. Another killed a worker on her farm. Like many radical peacemakers, she still asks, how can she deny her neighbors in Gaza what she wants for herself? Her neighbors don't have basic necessity. Hundreds of thousands have been made homeless in countless Israeli bombings. They're sealed off from the rest of the world without clean water, basic needs. Roni decries the rockets that fall in her community but she locates this in a larger story. Roni will often say, I'm not the naive one, you are. If you think I will ever get my safety when my Palestinian neighbors are denied their freedom and basic human rights? For, human, for her, human rights for Palestinians are not only a noble moral cause, it's a matter of self-interest, true long-term security that she won't be able to flourish unless her neighbors can flourish too and vice versa. Roni's also right on a more general level. 
Because think about it, what's more naive? To believe that the world's man-made problems will solve themselves if we continue to do exactly what we've been doing all these years? Or dare to imagine that small groups of good people, of goodwill, just like you, just like us, committed, hopeful, and relentless might inspire and lead us to change. In fact, where we find generational transformation, we also find communities of engaged peacemakers. From the abolition of slavery, through the anti-apartheid movement, to ongoing civil rights struggles, to ending genocide and war, small groups of committed individuals at all levels of society acting not only in their community self-interest, but also across lines of difference for the common good, have been the key drivers of true sustainable peace throughout history. I want to close with a very short poem and an ask. I first heard these verses recited by the great Mennonite expert on peacemaking, John Paul Lederach. This poem is by the 14th century Sufi Muslim poet Hafez. It reads, the fool builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage who has to duck her head when the moon hangs low keeps dropping keys all night long for all the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. Story is both cage and key. The cages we build within us, around us, and for the other, those people, those terrorists, those demonic liberals, or those crazy conservatives. The story about them, the cage we put them in. It's what paves the way for incredible injustice, from murder to apartheid to genocide. Peacemaking is the work of seeing and dismantling these cages within us and around us, collaborating across lines of difference so that we can together identify a common good. This is a key. This is not easy work, but it's the stuff of abundant living. If you're even a little bit curious, please dive deeper into the principles and practices of peacemaking. Meet some extraordinary peacemakers on Telos's podcast, Undaunted. Sign up for our newsletter at telosgroup.org so that you too can see how you and your community can embark on this transformational journey of our time. Together, we do hold the key not to make her world perfect, but to make it beautiful for all the beautiful, rowdy prisoners, for all of us. Thank you for listening to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is an interdenominational church centered around the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Our church is theologically rooted in the Apostles and Nicene creeds, but we welcome people of any or no religious backgrounds to participate in our community. If you would like to support us, please text Good Shepherd NY, all lowercase with no spaces, to 77977. That's Good Shepherd NY to 77977. Or visit our website, goodshepherdnewyork.com. Thank you for listening.